Hi guys, just a quick message ahead of the podcast you're about to listen to. This one was recorded around the first weekend in March, straight, uh, straight after the announcement from the Braun producers that No Time to Die would be scheduled and pushed out to November. This uh, is brought up and spoken about at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and the reason I'm giving this preface is essentially to give some clarity as to why we sound a little surprised that it was pushed so far, uh, you know, seven month delay. Uh, the social distancing and lockdown measures were obviously not in place at the time. I think social distancing was maybe being spoken about around that weekend, um, but we weren't. Uh, the situation even a month now when I'm editing this podcast is so much different. So I just thought I would give a little bit of a of a kind of rationale as to why we sound so surprised and even a little sceptical as to the motivations. But now we can see with hindsight the studio's move was uh, was a shrewd it was ahead of the curve they could see what was going to happen and financially if you want to say well, the reasons were for financial reasons um but at the same time it was a sensible move uh so yep yeah, enjoy the rest of the episode we spoke speak about moonraker which is a fantastic fun entertaining film and we will see you next time or you'll listen to us again when you do bye-bye <laughs> And welcome to another edition of the Bonda Podcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by two of my Bond aficionados, Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, Mr. Barry. Good afternoon as well. And Steve McCall. Hello and a very good afternoon to you all. I know, this is a nice sunny afternoon here. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I'm loving this. Yeah, and we're, we're approaching our one year anniversary, I just remembered. Is it? It was, it was it April something. We started the first one last year. Oh my God. That's petrifying. We need to... Ah, it's special. <laughs> right. That was your year. house, wasn't it? The, yeah. There was Bond episode zero, just talking yeah. about the general project. The pilot. Jesus, we need to we need to find a way to celebrate for the to market. Yeah, big Bond cake or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bond aft cake. Uh, yeah, a giant Walter PP cake. <laughs> golden golden gun cake. I think. Uh, yeah, obviously we are missing one of our Bond aficionados. Mister Francis Murphy is otherwise on assignment. Uh, we hope he survives and wish him all the best. Uh, on so, assignment, hopefully not captured. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. No, we have, we have. We have faith not, in him. We, is he missing in action, would you say? Not quite yet. He's just on assignment. We'll give him another day or two. Yeah, he did get an update, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. He seems he seems okay. No, he's uh, got uh, work commitments, I would I would put it that way. And so he wishes us all the best. And uh, yeah, I think he's probably going to be gutted when he realises he's missing one of the, the, the sort of pinnacle campist Roger Moore films. We're, by the way, we're here to talk about Moonraker, <laughs> yeah. the uh, 11th James Bond film, released in 1979, two years after, obviously, The Spy Who Loved Me, and also two years after Star Wars, which is, I think we mentioned it on the last one, this film was really meant to be for your eyes only, and it even came up at the end of The Spy Who Loved Me, James Bond will return, and for your eyes only, of course science fiction suddenly exploded the Star Wars phenomenon had taken effect every studio suddenly it had a script with any space action in it they threw the budget at that and therefore Moonraker was jettisoned into the 
and it's the kind of next James Bond film. I, I, I kind of before we get into more of the pre-production of this film, uh, Moonraker. Let's talk about the latest Bond film and all the sort of hubbub that's that going on right now with that. Very I feel good like point. that needs to be discussed. That's big, a big news, pretty yeah. huge deal. The new Bond film, No Time to Die, which was due to be out around about the, I think it was April 4th was the mooted release date, has now been put back to November, which is a seven-month delay because Bifit, well, the, the excuse that they're using is fears over coronavirus. Um, and we're about eighty percent skeptical of that. About, aren't you? Um, I mean, I'm, I, I can understand how that is. I guess because there there was talk previously. It was more to do with the the pre release promotion and the premiere and the fact that they'd have to get people in from around the world in one gathering in one place. And obviously, there's a lot of various different types of gatherings of that type, sporting events and stuff that are being cancelled. So. With that respect, I can understand why they delayed it slightly. I just don't understand. November seems like a massive, massive push. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose it does conveniently give them perhaps more time to perhaps tighten up bits that needed tighten up, finish off bits that weren't perhaps finished. So to be fair, this might be to our benefit. We might get a slightly tighter, yeah, slicker, was... better film out of it. And if that is the case, to be honest, I can deal with waiting a few extra months. Um, and also, I was going to be out of the country for the start of the film anyway, so yeah. I'm kind of glad that I'm now not missing it. I think it was very considerate of them, actually, because in some ways they've really benefited us. We might actually be able to catch up on the Bond films just to meet the No Time to Die release. So There's a part of me that likes to think that someone within Bond is actually listening to these podcasts. <laughs> yeah. but, oh, no, we, we need to let them catch up. We need to let these yeah. guys get to, to yeah. 25 before yeah. we release so, this. So That's very very considerate of them. No, it's uh, yeah, it's mad news. I mean, this is pro- I'm guessing this is the first of this kind of any of any of the Bond films a major delay like that isn't it? It's the first I remember and it's the biggest disappointment to us as fans I can kind of see why and I think just see the, the huge gap we've had waiting for No Time to Die you know I think originally we was maybe hoping it would be 2017-18 it's just gone on and on and on and I think for all all the work that's gone into it and all the time they they want to make it perfect and maybe as well just going for a a pre-Christmas a lot I think traditionally quite a lot of Bond films went for a pre-Christmas release and I think there's maybe a worry like through the the Broccoli family and Michael Wilson again who's been involved for decades with the Bond films they would have had experience of films where arguably they were brought out and marketed at the wrong time and in the wrong way. I think License to Kill was a good example of that. It didn't do so well at the box office because it, it was competing with some other big film that came out in the middle of the summer. And I think maybe there's been lessons learned from the likes of that. But yeah, I guess, like you were saying, you know, you, you hope that there's a lot of good to come out of this. Even like, it did worry me, you know, Hans Zimmer brought in pretty late to to get the score done. And you don't want the score to be rushed, you know, the the, the music is all a big part of the film. Yep. So, um, you know, hopefully it gives, you know, more time to, to tie that up and, you know, just give us a, a real killer film, you know. In fact, we, since the last podcast, we didn't have the theme song no that's absolutely true it came out just after our last podcast it was within a few days I think of it um, which I think, Gon, you still have you still not heard it? Are you going to actually hold off for seven months? <laughs> well, no, I, I've listened to it now. Uh, the first, I've seen it, I've, I've heard it twice. Well, the first I heard a bit of it. Now, it's funny because this was a good two weeks before and I was intending and not avoiding it until I got to the film. So I wanted to just enhance my enjoyment of the film. I can get that. Yeah, completely. So 
a, I wanted to do that. I was at the swimming pool and I was about halfway through my swim and I needed to jump to the toilet. So I went into the toilet. I heard heard this kind of song in the background over the speakers. I didn't really think much of it. Started, you know, doing my business. And, and then I, you know, about halfway, sort of like just <laughs> sort of starting the urination process. Um, <laughs> Oh, wow. hearing... This is more detail than we probably need. <laughs> so over over the speaker, I thought that sounds like Billie Eilish, and I thought I don't really know any of her stuff. This could be interesting because she's doing the new Bond song. And about ten seconds later, I thought, hang on, this sounds quite bonding. This is the new Bond song. I think I'm already kind of halfway through this, and I thought, no, I can't hear this song. I need to get out of here, but I'm in the middle of you know going to the toilet. <laughs> and I thought, oh well, I could God. I could go back to the. Um, Go back to the pool, dive under the water, and I don't need to hear it. But it takes it took me about a minute to actually get to the, <laughs> the pool because it's so far from the toilet. So by that time, I'd heard most of the song, so I'd failed in my um, my hopes to just avoid the song. Oh, that's, but that's... then, and then about a week later, um, the song we hear the November release day. So, <laughs> but no, actually, no, we didn't get a chance to talk about the song, then, did we? No. Until... Uh, what do you think of it? I love it. I properly. It's. I think it reminds me. Or it reminded me most when I first. And I think it still does of um, Garbage's version of the world is not enough. Um, I think there's the sort of slightly more sort of held back, slightly not as anthemic vocals. Uh, it's a lot more sort of Shirley Manson, mm-hmm. um, and it's the chorus, the build up to the chorus, and the chorus particularly is just spine tingling. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, and like the it. fact that it ends on that that famous. It's augmented ninth chords. Wow. The, the final chord something. of the song is that particular Bond chord. Um, I just, I think that's a, that's a lovely little touch. Oh, right, okay. I mean, yeah, yeah I it does. That, that, yeah, I see what you're saying. No, actually, it was, uh, I had a Bondian feel at the very end, and that's probably what it was. Yeah. Yeah, it, the haunting is the word that a lot haunting, of people use to yes. describe it. And that is, yeah, it's perfect to describe it, because I, I, that is kind of how I feel about it. And I, I like that, because I don't think a lot of the Bond themes have that, probably pick a few out I think maybe the earlier ones or, or whatever but I, yeah I really I really like it I think she's nailed I'm guessing she spoke about how she struggled to have ideas for it and then they sort of gave her the first third of the script or whatever the first yeah. scene or whatever and I'm guessing it alludes to something that happens in the plot and there's a bit more of context in the song then but I think it, I think it was going to work and as long as they do not you know m- sort of mix it with a, a, a sort of title screen or, or whatever that does not fit the song a la Die Another Day, you know, when Bond's getting tortured or whatever, and it's got a disco Madonna theme playing <laughs> yeah. over it. Um, you know, I think I think this could work really well, so I'm really happy for it. Gordon, you obviously... Pierce Brosnan's stress face as well. Oh, God. I mean, I haven't <laughs> seen any of I just remember it's it did not work. Face. But yeah, Gordon, um, your thoughts then? Um, I really like her voice. I actually think, after hearing that, I think she's a really good match. I enjoyed them more the second time than the first time, mm-hmm. needless you, to say. But um, Did you watch the live performance? At the... No, I did not. No. Um, now, I, the first time I heard it, I felt a little disappointed. I thought it feels a little kind of subdued. And then, you know, I think I feel it's one of these ones that's going to be a grower because I think this, mm-hmm. the Sam Smith one was a grower for me. I've grown to actually really like that. I feel though it's not so much. I think she's great. I think they need to flesh it out more. It's a bit, it takes to the second verse really for it to kind of come alive. It's just like, I think, hard the piano, the first verse. I, I feel they need to, we need something a bit more bombastic. I, I feel we've not had a real kind of, um, hard-hitting anthem Bond song since Casino Royale. I don't think we've had a real kind of right up our street sort of 
bombastic one since probably Goldeneye. So I, I suspect maybe that would work for the next one. You've got a new Bond. That's that's usually the the way it goes. You you, you hit it out there with that kind of bombast when you've got your yeah. new you know setting a new tone, establishing a new Bond. Maybe this one is it's, it's more plot context sensitive and that and it works for this story I suspect. yeah I mean that that's part of the reason like I was not going to listen to to saw the film because seeing the animation and the actual titles really adds to I mean the I when I saw the Spectre song actually in the film of the mm-hmm. the actual title sequence that it, it made me like it to a new level so I can't say I'm a big fan of Sam Smith's Spectre song I, uh, I don't yeah we did re- we remember I was discussing the music of Bond podcast at the time I wasn't too fussed I'm a bit more one that leaves me cold uh, I would say I just I just feel like and this is just kind of the way it's gone since um, apart from maybe well apart from maybe uh, what's it called the the quantum song um, Another Way to Die there's since Casino Royale the, the uh, it's really kind of since Quantum, I think the 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 Bond title songs have taken a bit of a kind of melancholic feel. Mm. Skyfall and then Spectre and then this one. I, I like feel they're, they're, uh, they're becoming a bit kind of sad sounding, you know. Yeah, maybe you're right. Um, yeah, a bit too subdued. And... Well, maybe the next one they'll have the Duran Duran or whatever, you know. Aye. <laughs> Duran Duran in there. Yeah, okay, so I think we've probably covered the, the, the sort of new Bond news. I don't think there's much more to that. Seven months, hopefully we can try and finish the project. We'll get to... at least another three podcasts yeah, we'll, in. We'll have finished the Moor era by that point, the way we're going right now. Um, yeah, so that's uh, big news. Uh, I'm thinking November timeline uh november release might be you know you could that's when films start competing for oscars you never know if that was a also a contention maybe they felt that they could try and get a couple of the oscars the bond films i imagine are probably overlooked usually yeah i think the christmas release date is actually a very good point i hadn't thought of that but i reckon that's probably on their mind as well because it's the next biggest release date because releasing in August, the summer September. ones are forgotten by that point. Exactly, because yeah. they've already missed the awards season, but they they're too early to be considered for the next one. So, uh, yeah, it's nobody really. If you want to be really considered, it's from November through to 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 February, probably. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, okay. Uh, let's quickly then um, let's go back into Moonraker. Then um, this is is this the last one really that's based I was trying to kind of follow this on Wikipedia my basic research is this the last one that has uh, is really taken from a James like the Ian Fleming novels or is there because the other ones are sort of short stories or something aren't they I think so let me think about that just quickly yeah yeah it is yeah they were obviously running out of Fleming material so they ended up going to the short stories until well until Casino Royale Unless you count the original Casino Royale, there obviously wasn't a neon production proper film till 2006 with that. But yeah, I mean, I would say this is very, just very loosely based in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much. I mean, a I think this is this is this is the you, you only love twice scenario where they take the name and maybe the setting, and that's about it. And the main the main villain Drax, but they, even him, there was a few kind of character changes. Like his uh, his description was quite different in in the book. Steve, have you seen this film? 
No, I genuinely don't think I have. Um, I know very little about it other than it's effectively Bond in space. Yeah. And it involves yeah. a laser. That's yeah. pretty much yeah. the sum total of my knowledge. Yeah. Uh, Gordon, obviously, I don't have to ask that question. <laughs> yeah. um, you mean how, how old was I when I first saw yeah, it? Yeah, okay. How, how, when when did you see this film? Must, must have been 96 or 97, so yeah. pretty young. R- renting it in VHS out of Global Video and Mulgai. And the couple of things that um, had a real pressure on me. Um, in fact, probably better watch the film first. But there's, um, yeah. Have I you mean, seen this after Spy Who Loved Me? Yeah, well, it was well after Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah, yeah. The comedic tone in this film, I think, is one of the things that is brought back because I think Guy Hamilton did it with uh, mm-hmm. with Roger Moore's films The Living mm-hmm. Like Die and Man with mm-hmm. the Golden Gun especially and I think it comes back in this one even though the director we haven't mentioned is Lewis Gilbert this is his final Bond uh, directed film he uh, previously did The Spy Who Loved Me which I actually have been thinking about I think that's probably one of the best we've seen so far yep agreed completely so I'm happy to see you know Lewis Gilbert directing again. He also did You Only Live Twice. And I think the thing you can connect those two films, Spy Who Love Me and You Only Live Twice, is the epicness of the final third. Like the sort of big battle and the sort of huge Bond base. That was a sort of a theme that you could connect the two. Um, Absolutely. You Only Live Twice. As well as the fact that you had, well, Ken Adams sets were just, the budgets were mad for some of those those sets. So that was something. Um, and I, 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 I've not... I can't remember. I've seen Moonraker a couple of times, but I imagine we're going to be treated with some Ken Adams sets again. Yeah, I think I think this was Ken Adams' last film. Oh, was he it? He was obviously doing the production designs in Stock to know. I believe this was his last. Right. Yeah. And after him, it would be Peter Lamont who went on to become a real kind of stellar name in the the Bond uh, um, Bond history. Yeah, this is also the last Bernard Lee performances in. Yeah, the last. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a shame he died shortly after this. It, Bernard Lee was going to be in Fear Eyes Only. It was actually it was early scenes filmed, but he, it was his health. Uh, it just it didn't go so well, and he, he ended up dying before Fear Eyes Only came out. So uh, Moonraker actually ended up in his last yeah. film. Oh, was, I can't even remember a lot of the. Now that I've watched so many of the Bernard Lee performances, I can really remember the the following. Um, I know that he appeared in one of the, the was it the last film, The Spy Who Loved Me. Um, the guy who oh yeah, Robert <laughs> Brown. Yeah, yeah Robert we, were, Brown. we were we were um talking during Spy Who Loved Me whether because he was an admiral and that admiral is Admiral Hargreaves whether he was the same character who'd been um who'd actually taken the job as M from his like that M who, who was an admiral so it's it's interesting little nuggets like that all the you know the Bond fans can discuss yeah okay quickly um, we'll talk about the sort of general pre-production obviously this is mostly set in I think France isn't it and it and was mostly filmed in filmed, France filmed in France and America it was and only they only used the 007 Pinewood stage apparently just for special effects I think Britain at the time um, had increased the taxes for a lot of the 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 entertainment industry so they went elsewhere around this time so I think um, is it John Glenn is the editor is the cinematographer he was or the editor he's I the think editor, he must have been the editor yeah, he, but he, he took he's, from he's the, about to become the director of the yeah, next few, isn't he? He was definitely involved in this. I think he must have been the editor. John Barry's back for the music after taking one film out. And I think he was working elsewhere, partly because of tax reasons, partly 
because of just other projects but um so uh, it's great to have his music back in the film so and he, did we mention i saw so, uh, 1979 moonraker mm-hmm. was the well give us a wee bit of plot yeah let's rundown. just let's quickly brief. have a quick brief plot rundown before we go and watch the film yeah because this time actually i've sort of gened up on it in advance because i you caught me with my pants down a bit <laughs> with the <laughs> with the last one where i thought what did i say what actually happened so in this, um, one of the space shuttles belonging to the Drax, um, the Drax Corporation, like sort of space exploration corporation, um, is it's on hire to the British government. Why I'm not sure, but it's it's been transported in the back of a Boeing seven five seven jet, and the jet um, disappears. Um, apparently destroyed there's wreckage found but there's no wreckage of the shuttle that it was transporting the question is could it why not it was a hijacked um the british government um sis are speaking to bond about this and uh, they kind of dispatch him to to speak to the owner of the drax corporation sir hugo drax who you know the character from the novel and who's a multi-millionaire or multi-billionaire and um, Bond, you know, finds he's got a few dark secrets in his whole... He spends all of the first half of the film trying to find out what he's up to and what role he's played in all this. One of his shuttles goes missing. He's sort of blaming the British government. So, yeah, that's it. You spoke about previously uh, how sometimes Bond has its big megalomaniac plots and it has a bit more of a serious, grounded nature. It's safe to say this is one of the biggest megalomaniac plots Bond yeah. probably ever has. Um, I think yeah. some critics at the time maybe said to its detriment. We won't go into that. We will watch the film and come back uh, with our thoughts as well. I think we've, we've summed up. We're pretty much at 20 minutes exactly. So that's a good enough time to now go and watch Moonraker. Bye-bye. And we are back after having watched Moonraker, James Bond's 11th film. Uh, what do we think of this one, gents? I love it. It's it's a crazy film, but I love it. It's pure Roger. It's, um, yeah, um, there's a lot happening. There's some great spy work by Bond. There's an absolute evil, real proper megalomaniac villain and I think he's well played by Michael Lonsdale as well yeah I enjoyed it what did you think Steve you, th- was this your first viewing you were saying it was that that was absolutely my first viewing of that and I think we all kind of had to stand back for just a second after that and just go <gasps> <sighs> yeah. wow and just kind of take it all in because that was absolutely madcap that was quite a journey yeah that, quite literally yeah. I think the amount of location hopping in that film was almost it was almost too much. If you blinked for a second, suddenly he was in a different country and you kind of didn't know where he was and what he was doing and what was happening. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was insane as a film. Absolutely crazy. But, I mean, it, it culminated and, and that kind of end fight was just epic. So yeah. it was, it was enjoyable anyway. It was, it was the, I think it's probably the most, the most slapstick I've seen in any Bond film. And we'll go into this probably where there were some ridiculous comedic moments, but it was enjoyable enough. Yeah. It was just as a few kind of, as a couple of hours of escapism, it's actually perfect. Yes, it is. That's exactly it. Like the, the scenery and the locations themselves are fantastic. Some of Ken Adam, again, greatest stuff. Maybe a little too much at times that like you, you, you pointed out the location hopping. It did feel a bit 
could get lost in where we were and things like that. And it, some of it was it was kind of pacing was a bit off at times. The tone would be a bit when it would go camp. I would be a bit like uh, roll my eyes. But then the next minute, I would be absolutely amazed. At either beautiful cinematography or scenery yeah. or a stunt that some of the stunt work uh, with the boat chase. Steve, we'll get we'll get into that was fantastic it went right to the edge and then pulled you back in mm-hmm. various <laughs> various times yeah yeah overall i did i would certainly say escapist enjoyment i really really did like it by far not the best it certainly got its flaws from a film point of view but i, I think nothing that upset me or angered me it was just uh, a little moments where you feel they could have you know pulled back a little or something like that you can certainly see the influence of star wars in this one oh like, god from yes the off, straight the, from yeah the at the end of it, it was just like the, the Death Star just being destroyed, you know, Drax's space hideaway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just, and the big it's battle. Crazy. It is insane. Like, I don't, you almost don't know where to start. No, exactly. As, <laughs> as they were approaching that um, base in space, you kind of just, I just kind of felt myself thinking, that's no moon. I know. <laughs> just, uh, it was yeah. so... It's, I was waiting for the line that's a space station or something, but they exactly. obviously knew not to, to go that far, but it might yeah. they might as well have. It was mad. Yeah. And I could also see where it's been parodied so much. The Austin Powers films, I could see all over it. Yep. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Oof. fun film. Uh, whew, where do you want to start? I mean, we could try chronologically off from, from the beginning, I suppose. The Return of Jaws, Richard Keel, and a sort of skydiving... Murder plot. What <laughs> would you think of that? Yeah, I liked the pre-tells. It was like, I'm, I'm one of these ones I've said it's like a mini movie because it was unconnected to the the real mission. Apart from the fact Jaws seemed to be hired by another kind of hoodlum or criminal who um, I, it's like he's just in this vendetta against Bond. It's personal between him and Bond now, but uh, incredible stunt work, man. The skydiving and um, you know quick editing to try and hide obviously the stuntmen and the, you know the angles and things like that but done for real you know two um, experienced skydivers parachutists doubling for for Richard Keel and Roger Moore I think, yeah I think I read that they had to do the stunt like 88 times or something like that some grueling uh, work Aye. but it did pay off obviously the pre-titled scene did set the tone for the film though just yeah. it was it, it was really really incredible and then there's that circus bit they were obviously about to land on. Oh. Right, with that music kicked in, and you just thought, "Oh, this is going to be ridiculous, isn't yeah, it?" Yeah, that kind of lost me for a second. It took yeah. a while for me to sort of come back around to the film in the first twenty minutes because of yeah. that. I was like, "Oh, exactly." Yeah. It wasn't. Yeah, the whole circus thing, the the music, and then Jaws flapping his arms in the air. Why was that quite necessary? Yeah, they really they couldn't resist around Jaws to have the comedy is mostly all around him. That's where the the sort of slapstick. I thought that, and that was that was slightly sort of disappointing because in the obviously the previous film we saw Jaws, I thought he was actually a really good sort of quite terrifying genuine villain henchman. Whereas you're right in this, they flipped him on eighty, and he was a, he was effectively the comedy character. He Most was, of the comedy came from him. He became He's, Bond's friend. He became Bond's friend. He got a girlfriend. Yeah. It was. It, it, that wasn't. I, I don't think that was the greatest of moves. Taking uh, yeah. up an established, really good henchman yeah. and turning him into a comedy character. It used to irritate me when I first watched the, them back to back, and um, I can't remember which one I had seen first. Actually, it might have been Moonraker. And then when I watched this by Halopi, I was like, "Wow, he's an awesome character." And then you watch Moonraker again, and you're like, "Oh, oh. he's just not." But yeah. I think the the reason behind that I was reading actually 
was that they had been after the spy who loved me a lot of kids apparently had been writing in to the uh, broccoli um and and, and and the writers or whatever and and saying that they wanted bond to become friends with jaws or something and they sort of took that as a kind of well this is what the fans want sort of thing I think it's a wrong move. No, never uh, listen to the public. Yeah, That's yeah. especially if it's children, if we're actually like children that wrote in, because they maybe it worked for them. You know, it was Duff. like Batman and Robin kind of vibe, but it's not always the best uh, stuff that comes out of that. You no, know? That, that was why Jaws came back in the first place. He wasn't going to be in this film, but all these kids were like, we want Jaws, we want Jaws. So he, that was the reason he came back. And then, yeah, it must have been the reason that they made him. I, of course, they wanted him to be a good guy as well. Yeah, yeah, it's not the, not the best move. And I think when you think about it, all of the comedic moments are mostly around him. His reaction to things, him like narrowly escaping death and sort of shrugging it off. And then it's kind of just done for... He even plays like... A, it's like a kind of caricature where he overly does his, the, the grab thing. It's like a, he's playing yeah. a monster or something. In fairness, he's overplaying it a bit. Exactly. I mean, the, he he does play the character, the, the comedy character, exceptionally well. I, I don't think I would take that away from the actor because he... He's obviously doing what he's told. Oh, no, certainly. I wouldn't, but, I wouldn't put it mostly on him, but I do think yeah. he actually overacted, certainly, even the mannerisms a little. Yes, just, yeah. Um, but the writing is it's mostly, oh, this is all writing. That's yeah, the, the main exactly. That's, that's what they were going yeah. for. It's a with, shame. With regards to the girlfriend he gets, this little girl with blonde hair and glasses who rescues him from the rubble, George, yet again, emerges from the rubble of a building after falling off the cable car. And... You know, I just think, right, okay, right, that's funny. You could even have maybe got away with that like, if they had that moment with Jaws walking up, off with her, but it's the fact that she returns, she goes with him up to Drax's space station and she's involved in quite a lot of scenes after that. I think that was going to How far. did she end up getting recruited for the space programme? You start kind of thinking, <laughs> yeah. how did that happen? Is uh-huh. that massive coincidence? Or did Jaws say, okay, I'll come up to protect right, you back. Yeah. I want to take this random girl with me. He obviously had some sort of say over these things, you know, been high up in the organisation, apparently as a hired killer. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not, and that, and that sort of speaks to volumes of the film and this with the flip-flopping tone, the sort of kind of silliness that it had, which is a shame because there was moments where you were just absolutely awestruck. I, I, you know, again, it was mostly set design and just some of the lengths they go to with the kind of some of the the locations and the and the stunts and things and then and that kind of pulls it a bit. It was like the man with the golden gun a little, you know. To we kept we harped on about how that stunt was almost ruined by that silly the slide whistle, the slide yes. whistle, and it's yeah. that kind of feeling where they don't. I think the Bond films don't do comedy as well. Like I, I think it's a dated thing where I think maybe back then audiences might have liked it. Yeah, but I feel like we don't. I mean, we weren't that we weren't laughing at most of the scenes that I think you were meant to laugh at. But there was points I did laugh. Yeah, but not quite. I think it was moments. That that, it was we were laughing at the unintentional stuff yeah. and groaning the stuff that was legitimate. I mean, Venice was a perfect example. That Venice St Mark's Square looked incredible. And then there was just that comedy boat chase where this, this yeah. sped up gondola suddenly becomes a yeah. hovercraft yeah. and careers through St. Mark's Square and you've got yeah. everyone's reactions and the, the double-taking the pigeon. Double-taking yeah. pigeon, of course. They couldn't resist. Yeah, and I want, you know, the funeral boat, the guy comes out of the coffin. And I wonder, him having that high-speed gondola with all the, the attached um, defence systems, I think, did you say to Bond, right, we've supplied you with this gondola. It's just for if you're just chilling out going down the, <laughs> the waterway. Like, just in case you get attacked, we've, we've spent thousands of pounds fitting all, all this enemy deterrent stuff, just in case. And of course, and how I think maybe more bo- 
more than any other Bond film. The amount of times that the Q branch gadgets get Bond out of trouble in this film, this was film. Just insane. Every, literally from, from the first moment to the last. Almost. Everything was a gadget. Yes, aye. I mean, I don't even remember like them because obviously the Q scene they didn't really show you him getting all this stuff you just kind of assumed that he yeah had it. you showed him getting the watch uh-huh. which and that I think he, he used that about three times yeah to save, save his, his own life or other people's lives I think that that's a I mean that's maybe more of a realistic gadget along the lines of because you know it's widely known that the um, the intelligence services even going back to the war they did have kind of simple hidden gadgets and, and you know maybe like the dark the wrist action dart gun, the watch dart gun, you know, that that's maybe, you know, a bit more believable. Yeah, it's, more low See, like, yeah. it's not a gondola that transforms. I know, yeah, yeah. Like, like I said, I mean, and it's also good he notices this. I don't know if you've ever done anything like this, but when he realizes that Dr. Goodhead is a CIA operative, he come, he he obviously thinks, or he notices certain objects he has that, that he obviously knows what sort yeah. of things the CIA would, would install, um, you know, as gadgets. And, and he, there's the diary which fires out a, a dart. There's the perfume which is a flamethrower. You know, that's quite good. I he think. knew every single one. I suppose as he was walking around the room picking stuff up, and he, he was he sort of knocked off five or six different mm-hmm. sort of hidden weapons in one go. Yeah, and that that's that that almost struck me as odd. And then he went because you're a CIA agent. I was like, right, okay. He knows the CIA's weapons yeah. as well, so that kind of made sense. It wasn't just him instinctively picking up things that turned out to be weapons. There was a, a hint of sense in there. It reminded me of the one of the bonus features for the f- previous films I've been watching. They have an old clip of Roger Moore playing Bond. Um, I think it's like th- in the early 60s. It's right after maybe Doctor No from Russia with Love. So they already were an established thing, but they weren't at the camp level they were at. But it was a parody and Roger Moore's playing him. And he, he's in his mid-30s, so he looks really young quite. And um, he's got a kind of more... It's done with campness even before his has obviously taken the Bond character but essentially him and I can't remember the, the character she's meant to be but essentially she's a, like a, an agent as well they don't trust each other and they're just sitting at a restaurant and they're talking on the surface like they're just a date, like on a date sort of thing but everything's a double entendre <laughs> in terms of like and they keep like raising their glass and it, they don't trust that the other one's not poisoned it so they're constantly swapping each other's I've glasses and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that it's actually quite funny but it's all done in one take as well which is actually, it's quite a long it's like 10-15 minute thing but it's quite funny it reminded me of that just because obviously he's meeting someone who's just as capable in, in the spy world as him which I quite yeah. liked and spotting out all these different gadgets yeah and, and uh, you know we, we have um, went on about the the lack of as one of you guys described real kick-ass um, Bond girls and I think Dr. Goodhead's like you know fits that mold and she, you know she's very capable you see her Taking out all these yeah, um, cool. drags. Yep. She's up in the space station. She's always what I love. She's always kind of maybe not always, but she's she was often one step ahead of Bond, and it took Bond quite a while to realise that she wasn't working for Drax. She was actually working for the the American government, mm-hmm. and you know she she was telling Bond all this information about where Drax was um, flying out all all the equipment from his base in Rio because it turned out that. He he basically had these bases across the world that he was using to. One was for basically putting the poison together to create these globes to essentially destroy the human race. And you know, but you know, she was well clued up in this before Bond was, and she was. There's that one-upmanship, great chemistry between the two characters as well, which you know, I, I thought I thought um, Lois Childs that played her, you know, 
was, was really good, and she's one of those sticks in my mind. Yeah, I, th- I thought she was fab, actually. She was great. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah, the, I mean, from the start, she kind of gets one up, because I mean, the first time the two of them meet... Um, I mean, Bond is massively patronising. There's a lot oh, of mansplaining going on there. She's she a obviously woman knows. Line, whatever it's yeah, that's. I noticed that down. I was oh. like, oh wow. <laughs> and then from there, when she's trying to explain stuff, he talks over the top and goes, "Oh yeah, that's," and explains exactly what the the sort of space thing was. And there's there is that you can tell from her reaction is kind of I know all this. You're telling me this, but she she comes across as intelligent and she does have that one upmanship throughout it. And I, I actually was I was really impressed with her. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the best written female characters they've had in a while, probably yeah. since um, Tracy and on her Yeah, and the, I think a lot of people liked um, Gala Brand, who was and she was the the main female character in the novel of Moonraker. So um, she wasn't even used, but they had they created this new character, Holly Goodhead, and and going back to the novel, it was obviously it was very different. It was, I'm sure I've not actually read it, but I think the whole thing was set entirely in England. And Drax was, um, it started off. He was, he was actually an associate, well, somebody who um, gambled in the same club as M, and M thought he was cheating and enlisted Bond to find out about him. But the one one thread that does continue into the film is Drax is that he's like a multi-millionaire, a billionaire that has come out of nowhere, and I think that actually even like influence the character that Toby Stevens played in Die Another Day, you know, this because you know, Drax in the novel had very distinctive ginger hair, and he kind of had ginger hair as well, but I think Michael Lonsdale I thought he was really good, he kind of it, it was a sort of, I think he, he deliberately sort of un, underplayed the character, and he was he was a bit sort of like monotone, but he had a, he had a very villainous look, you know, the black hair and the, the beard, and and he was just, he was, he was so evil, and the way, even just the the way he the way he said certain lines, even as a kid, I remember remember when Bond at the start goes to his, his huge chateau, which is it's meant to be out in California, and as Bond's leaving his his big drawing room, he says to Chang, the the guy who's his bodyguard, he says, "Observe, Mister Bond." Make sure some harm comes to him, and yeah, it's just that that line. Yeah. Just I wrote that make down sure, well. make sure some harm comes to him. When I saw that as a kid, you know, it hit me quite hard. I thought that that you know, this is it's one the, evil guy. You, normally, you expect it to be the opposite, where they say make sure he's treated well or something like that, and it's no, he's just saying it outright. But it's delivered in that really dry way. Where it's like, yeah, his delivery throughout the film, I thought was really impressive. Yeah, actually, liked, yeah, I liked him. I think the the Bond evil, the evil Bond villain Tunic as well. He had to, yeah, the Bofeld <laughs> Tunic. tunic, yeah. It's, yeah, it worked really well. I think you needed that main villain, uh, and and obviously it's just a shame that they kind of s- suffered a little with the, the turn on Jaws. But uh, yeah, Drax was great, and yeah, Megalomaniac probably the, the that's the maddest one I think, isn't he overall? The mass I, plot yeah. with the master yeah. race. Uh, there was there was a very kind of Hitler and Nazis. Oh yeah, theme under running that which True, was, was, yeah, was quite something. But yeah. once you established that, yeah, yeah. it did kind of make you go, oh wow, this guy is yeah. this guy is mad. This um this plan to have start his own human race, all sort of the most perfect looking couples he could assemble, different nationalities. He he said remember he said a line to Bond in that very drawing room at the start when before the whole every, all the pieces came together, he said to Bond, um, I, I something along the lines of uh, I like to utilize talents and uses of people from all nationalities and all creeds or something like that. And obviously that, you know, it was clear then, you know, what, ah, what he meant by right. that. Yes. I think, yeah, yeah. He, I loved it and he's, he's, he's Doberman sit there. 
Um, they won't they won't eat the steak till he clicks his fingers. <laughs> yeah, classic moments. Okay, uh, so obviously we have. Uh, let's talk about the theme song then. Shirley Bassey came back third time. Yeah. Uh, what do we think of this one? Of her three, I think that's the best. It was the most really? understated. Yeah. Wow. I'm the big sort of traditional anthemic ones. I just find her a bit sort of maybe because they're too closely linked. Sort of. I don't. I find them a little bit cheesy. They're very, oh, okay. very. They're almost too bond. With this one, I think you said it wasn't kind of marketed. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big deal. Wasn't particularly made out of this one in the same way that her previous two were. And I just, I thought it was a really nice tune. It wasn't too over dramatic, which the other two obviously have been. Wow, that's an um, interesting take. Certainly didn't. I didn't expect that. For me, it's actually the weaker of the three. I I prefer the the stereotypical stuff. I think the Goldfinger theme is one of the best Bond themes, and and so that's kind of a, it's my favourite Shirley one as well. And Diamonds, I, I don't mind. I know you guys aren't really a fan of the Diamonds theme. Um, I no, no, don't I'm a fan. It's, it's just I was going to say. So you you think Moonraker's her best? Do you think it's her? Um, third. I think it's chronological. I think it's second. But actually, I do like the diamonds. I forever. But I would say my my perception of the diamonds one and this one has gone up a few notches recently when I've started to listen to the song more in isolation. Listen to the soundtrack. Yeah, like isolation. if you divorce the diamonds theme from the film, then to me it's <laughs> you kind of have to. Do that, yeah, you yeah. have to. Yeah. Uh, this one doesn't quite do it for me, but it, I mean, it's not bad either. It's certainly not the worst we've had, but no, it, it's certainly not. Didn't strike me the same way, but it's interesting actually hearing how we all have different views on it, which is quite cool. Yeah, I think yeah. Just um, recently, I I took to listening quite a bit to the the Moonraker, the score throughout, and the the title song at the the main melody is used a lot throughout the film, which I really enjoy. And mm-hmm. It's a very kind of orchestral take this time, but the John John Barry who was back after not being involved in the Spy Who Loved Me. I really love the music in this film. That Yeah, the soundtrack I've been, been listening to quite a bit. Yeah, I liked some of the stuff in space. Uh, yeah. It, 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 I don't know how to describe it, but I, I, I did feel it was quite atmospheric. And there was a classical sort of... There was moments of classical music used as well in the film. Drax playing the piano... It's his introduction and things like that it was quite nice. To that was me. that was an interesting. I, I wasn't quite sure what the significance of that was. was I think it's it just establish him. He he's you know a, a, he's a bit of a sort of cultured. Yeah, yeah. It, it worked for the scene, I think. But um, yeah, it was and there was moments that the music didn't work. I suppose some of the the slapstick it, the, we touched on it earlier. The, the the carnival kind of music, the circus stuff. That point. The the bit, the, the only bit of music that I really didn't like was the use of. I think it was the Magnificent Seven. Yes. Theme. But do you know? I thought it was kind of cool seeing Bond, especially what we'll consider. Uh, see, I think it's meant to be somewhere in South America where he goes to the what's essentially the the MI6 base out in the field and he, he meets M and Q and one. Well, he's on the ho- he, he he's, on, he's him and two other men in horse. He escapes out the ambulance, ends up on horseback. And then arrives at this base in South America where he yeah. encounters M and Money Penny and stuff like that. And it's a bit where he's on horseback. Yeah. And he's got a Clint Eastwood style, uh, was oh, a poncho, the poncho on the hat. Yeah, yeah. It, and yeah. It, it was the Magnificent Seven theme. It was it was credited at the end of the film. Oh really? I think I think it's cool seeing Bond wearing that outfit on the horse. But do you know what would have been a lot cooler, infinitely more cooler, if 
don't have the Magnificent Seven theme, have some variation of the Bond theme, have Horseback. That would have been cool. And that's for me, that's like like it was kind of lazy to take and just get the theme in there, you know? Yeah, it's kind of like, remember, said the Spy Who Loved Me, the the silly music when the man runs out of power in the middle of the desert. That film was so good, but that moment was awful. Yeah. But that's the only part, uh, the bit we're talking about, that's the only part of the music that. I, I, it was, I mean, you had the 007 theme coming back, that sort of uh, one from the early films, yeah. that sort of action theme music for the, the chase scene in the boats. So, yeah, it's kind of very a lot of different stuff in there. Set design, Ken Adam, I think, fantastic. Wow. Blowing me away. Mm. Possibly over the top. I mean, right from the fact that everybody had, everyone's bedroom was massively opulent. <laughs> yeah, uh, true. The... Huge, gold-lined, massive beds acres of space, desks, everything was sort of marble and like something out of a palace. And this was just like the hotel, the, the room that the pilots at um, Drax's main chateau. I presume that was, was that her, might it be her bedroom? The one that Bond yeah, was Bobby, in yeah. just before he snuck into the study. To yeah, that was, some, that was some bedroom. Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> and, I mean, $35 million was the budget for the film. So, you know, obviously... Adam went really through the kitchen sink after. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But um, it was the, I mean, obviously culminating in the space station was, it was just incredible, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. it was fantastic. The the sort of, the opening when they, he's following the female into the area and it's going through that area where he finds up fighting a snake and all that and it's like an Aztec. <sighs> it's like, it reminds me of Adam and Eve or something, especially the really nice music by John Barry mm-hmm. and I think very colourful and uh, it's just it's just pure Roger Moore all these beautiful women smiling to him he follows them he smiles back it's pure Roger Moore and you can't there's so much of this film you can't imagine any other Bond actor well not say or just Timothy Dalton or just Daniel Craig because they're some of the more serious ones but you can't really imagine um, any other Bond actor doing a lot of the 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 scenes that Moore does in this film. Yeah, it was a, a very, very Moore film. Some of the one-liners, I mean, the best one, it's one of the best one, one-liners of the entire franchise, I think. the uh, I think he's attempting re-entry, so oh, huge right. line. Do you know the <laughs> best bit about that scene with Bond, Bond obviously, Bond and Dr. Goodhead, right, having sex in outer space when there's no gravity but it's not the fact that they're caught on camera but see when Bond looks at the camera and he smirks you know obviously Frederick Gray the Minister of Defence is really angry he's like what's Bond doing? Bond smiles and Gray kind of looks back he just sort of reluctantly nods as if it's, <laughs> it's like just reluctantly <laughs> accepting it I, I just love that that's the best well, bit it's, it's, that must be what the 11th time that Bond's been caught I know. Pumping someone in a boat or something. Some <laughs> yeah. kind of some kind of capsule at the end of uh, yeah. a mission. So he must be... He's, he'll be getting used to it by now. Why, why did they try and contact him? Why don't they just wait? Just why to, did they like, patch him through to the Queen? And how and the did press they have the I don't understand. He said, oh, there's some sort of camera we can get through to in the shuttle, but how would you get through to it, you know? Uh, who knows? It was for, 70s, for the 70s, the technology was... Aye, pretty incredible in that sense. I'll give it that much. Aye, the, the other bit um, not long before that that I thought was insane was did the... So obviously there's... Now this is similar to Star Wars. There's that radar jamming system which means when Bond and Holly arrive in the, the space station, Earth... Nobody in planet Earth knows that Drax even has this base because of the radar jamming system. Now they disable that which then immediately it gets somehow people... Um, 
working for the US government know about it. Like we're sending a team up there to deal with it, but they get it's as though they get there in half an hour. This yep. is a, how do you <laughs> I, get? I always try to think of that. I was like, they on. got there pretty quickly. And they happen to have a, a team of soldiers on board who were trained to fight in space. Call, trained yeah. to fight with lasers in space. I mean, yeah. at that point, you have to put your kind of brain on the floor and just accept the visuals you're getting here. It looks amazing. <laughs> didn't make that, a lick of sense. Firstly, the, yeah. that's the, the underlying theme of this film is just to just go with it. look at it and uh, then yeah. look at how pretty it is yeah. and go Again, it's like what you always say about what Guy Hamilton's like as director and a lot of his like style more than sense a lot of uh-huh. the time. And I thought of it. I loved how Drax had this baby of beautiful women everywhere doing various jobs. Like one is um, in the the glass factory in uh, Venice is the tour guide. One works at the reception, and the the two of them later on you see that they are part of the new sort of master race in space, wearing like the kind of Moonraker whoever you call them outfits and. Uh, it's. I wonder. Does he say to him, right? So for the, for the first couple of months, I want you to just work in this glass factory. I'll pay you quite well for it. But then when you go up to space, we'll um, you know, proper triple your salary. <laughs> you do wonder what the recruitment because you're you're going to be responsible for a new race. So, you know, there's going to be a few changes. I mean, how did no one have family and friends down there that they cared about? That that was it. They were happy to you know take this money for this 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 new life. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, there's a lot of questions there that went unanswered. Uh, it's it's fun. It's like a cartoon, that kind of henchman uh, kind of thing, isn't it? That level, yes, was just it was batshit, but still enjoyable. Into, yeah, exactly. You you can't you can't take it too seriously. The film the film is not saying to you, look, just just go with it. It's yeah, fun. but going back to how it how the film looks, there was a lot of like you say that you were kind of put off by the comedy, and then you'd see a scene. I mean, as simple as the the scene where the two dogs were chasing oh, wow, Pilot yeah. in the forest, and you, I mean, the terror that must have been gone through her being chased by two angry dogs was you could feel yeah. that, but also it was lit beautifully. That forest just looked fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, yeah, things like the the wide shot of St. Mark's in Venice, the wide shot of Rio de Janeiro from the top of Sugarloaf Mountain. Yeah, gorgeous, again, gorgeous, gorgeous, absolutely beautiful. It was, it was really well. It was, it was. It's the use of lighting. I think it's stunning. The fight scene where. Chang and and the was it Chang? Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm just laughing because there's just so much glass gets broken. Oh yeah, I mean that scene, was, that was like a, the scene, that something was... at the raid, but maybe yeah. not quite. As, as uh, it just it just but, appears out of nowhere. It's yeah. just silence. And it's gay. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I really like Chang, uh, you know, but he's not a, busy pouring cups of tea and offering cucumber. It sandwiches. was a mad. It was quite a mad scene, but there, there was a point when they go up to this sort of bell tower type. Um, and it's like lit. It's a dark blue, and the cinematography is absolutely fantastic. Yes, the light coming through the the big yeah. stained glass yeah. clock. Yeah, yeah, yeah so it's fantastic, and, and it's, it's the way it's it's sh- the, the, the sort of blocked out, and it just looks amazing. It was I, composed. I was imp- yeah. I was really impressed with the the visuals of the whole thing. Obviously, it culminates in Chang getting chucked out a window and landing face first into a piano with and a one liner from Bond. How do you have a fight in a? A museum made entirely of glass and come up with not a scratch. I, know. I mean, I've, Only I've nicked myself on a, a a little bit of glass that's been lying next to I don't know a broken window or something like that before. You can't help it. Yeah, yeah and how yeah. how they filmed it as well was was amazing. The bit they used what you call sugar glass, like very kind of thin glass. Yeah, but yeah, not a scratch on them. Yeah, yeah, they 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 did seem quite fresh for guys yeah. being chucked through glass and yeah. all sorts but of ornaments and things like that. The two beforehand were effectively established straight up how much all that glass was worth as well, kind of added to that sense of oh god, that's a million, that's two million, that's three and a half million yeah. being broken, yeah. <laughs> and that's four glass vases. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's going to be a big bill for all that. Yep. Uh, there's the this the moments that I laughed were things like the 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 chase was was crazy, but it was the way that like when Bond had got you know done with one henchman from explosion, all of a sudden another boat would appear. It was like Jaws and things like that. Those yes. sort of stuff that made me laugh. I like that. It was just yeah. because it was that film kind of just saying it's a cartoon, just gonna go with it. Just go with it. Yeah, computer there's, game. There's a completely yeah. expendable. Um, list ah, of yeah. humans yeah. with gadgets. It's like the way Jaws was prepared to go out into the the middle of the essentially the sort of monorail the cable car was on between the the remote mountain and the. We have to question the, Bond's logic with that. Yeah. We are safer out than any. I really, I climb on top of this thing in the middle of yeah the air. Really, was that the smartest? And then he ends up dangling, of course, off of it. Oh, but you know, did you hear about the the way that stunt was done? This is a oh, I read it in Wikipedia. The, the stuntman slipped and nearly fell. Yeah, see, there's at least one shot there. What you see in cameras is him literally hanging hundreds of feet from the ground off a cable car with one hand. This uh, stuntman, Richard Graydon, who was doubling for Bond, and it was obviously these were for distance shots. So you would imagine it was Bond. He um he said that when they filmed it, this is in the documentary you'll have as part of your Blu-rays, Steve. He had a safety harness which was hidden from the view of the camera, which would mean if say he had let go, he would be still held on the top of the cable car, right? Um, now for whatever reason, because they were preparing this distant shot, um, the stunt man hadn't yet attached his, his safety harness, Jesus. and um, Lewis Gilbert. Um, I think was a bit premature to do the shot. He thought he was ready. He's like, action. And just be- he heard the word action and because he wanted to be professional and do the scene because they were all ready and set up, he sort of did the scene and then he, he somehow ended up falling off. Uh, well, almost falling off, sorry, but holding on by one hand, but he didn't have the safety harness and he was almost, he almost slipped hundreds of feet to his death. And Lewis Gilbert didn't shout cut, so they were still filming. So some of what you see in the camera there is literally a man hanging um, with one hand off God, the top of a cable that's car. That's terrifying. And the same, the same stuntman went on to do some great other stunts, like Octopussy and you know some other that's films. The after. madness, the logic there of the stuntman to think, well, I'm not got the safety on some, but I've got to do the scene. <laughs> yeah, you know. it's so good. Uh, I'll give yeah. that a shot. Wow, that is insane. That's commitment right there. For a film, I mean, you know, at the end yeah. of the day, it's just a film. But Yeah, and Roger will get all the plaudits anyway. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah no, 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 until they've watched this. Yeah. The good thing is, you could, see, you could see with that, that um, the scenes with the, the, with Bond and, and Good Ted fighting Jaws in the, the top of the two cable cars, there was bits, obviously, you know, the close-ups, it was done in a studio, but there was there's distant shots that were done, you know, with at least two stuntmen on the top of the cable cars. I, I don't know if it was that exact location, Sugarloaf Mountain and, and Rio, but, you know, certainly real cable cars, you know, it was done for real certain bits. Ah, some fantastic scenery. And Steve, you were able to say you've been there again. I was going to say, I feel, I feel, I can't help feeling like I'm showing off, but there's a lot of, I keep watching Bond films, yep, been there, been there. And this one particularly, I recognise, obviously, Venice immediately. Um, I was only in Brazil a couple of years ago and I was like, I've been up Sugarloaf Mountain, I've been in that cable car and I'm kind of gutted that I've, Oh, I'm only watching these films now. Oh, right, yeah. Because the amount of scenes I could... Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think I would have climbed out a cable car, but the amount of scenes I could have recreated <laughs> yeah. on holidays. Like, oh, I've missed out so many opportunities. Uh, yeah, brave man. Oh, well, it's an excuse to go back, my friend. Yeah. I was going to say, yes, I shall. Maybe we'll do the Bond daft on tour. Yeah, we need to send uh, our agents out in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'm happy to be... Um, well, if we can get the money together, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe there. that's where Fran is, actually. He's a, I think he's in Rio de Janeiro, so maybe he's doing it right now, actually. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Is there anything else you want to cover before we get to the rating? I was a couple of things. Um, yeah. I think I said the quick, ed- quick editing style, which I think really helped a lot of the action scenes. Um, I liked the whole thing with the center fuse, the big revolving machine. That reminded me of Thunderball when Bond was stuck in the ah, traction table, which so. we always sniggered about. Yeah. And um, so I think that was really well done. Um, and yeah, I was going. I was going to add to you the thing you said, Steve, about. Um, about uh, Corrine's death in the forest. That's a very dark scene. And there's it's a one, there's the closest one Bond has come to a horror moment. I mean, it was real. Yeah, it was. Terrifying. It also reminded me, there, there's, there's actually, see if you look at the series on the whole, even just if you look back to previous films, the amount of times that um, innocent women have died in the hands of Bond. And, uh, well, sometimes you look at in Goldfinger, for example, but that was more down to negligence than Jill Masterson and her sister getting killed by odd job. But, there's, you know, you will see films later down the line where it's like Bond, we, we know that it's part of his job description, essentially, to use what, what means necessary to get information. To, and so he got the information. He got um, Corrine to basically allow him access to the safe, and that way he was able to piece together Drax's um, manufacture of the globes and, and you know, his, his overall plot. And but yeah, a dark scene. Uh, one, there was one or two kind of darker scenes in the film. Uh, but one, one of the real strengths of the film, I think, is although it gets crazy at the end, right? We'll acknowledge that. And um, people say, oh, you know, these Bond villains, or oh, they're gonna, they want to destroy the world. <laughs> the closest, but a Bond villain ever came to destroying the world was this film, right? There's no argument about that. Um, you can't take that away. But there's some, there's some real. I love the scenes where Bond's been stealthy and he's hiding. The way he sneaks into that laboratory, I think, is brilliant. And he observes the basically two guys dying, but the rats surviving. So it's obvious that. That was through Bond leaving a lot, one of the gas canisters lying at the side of the table, and even or the way he, extra, he manages to get access to the safe, the way he um, sneaks around the glass factory, you know, he he does behave like a detective in a lot of ways as well. And it's the way he pieces together the, the parts of the plot, which takes him from from the chateau in, in California. He then realizes that Drax is actually using the glass components, which are manufactured in Venice, and then that. It, the lead there then takes him to Rio, where a lot of the stuff's getting shipped from. So I, I do feel he, he does kind of act the detective in this as well, which I think. So and a lot of people forget that about this film. A lot of people say, "Oh, this is one Bond goes to space and the villain tries to blow up the world." And you know, but no, you're right. It was actually a, of of the films we've seen. This one has a slightly more structured story to it. You could actually follow where it was going. It was a it was a lot more. You're right. It was a lot more detectivey, mm-hmm. and I think that that is to its advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of the obviously you were saying the quick editing that does help a lot. The fight scenes and stuff like that. There was a lot of use. I don't know if it is just the Blu-ray which makes it more obvious, but use of um, speeding up and slowing down film to show where something is gone fast. So the the gondola, for example, when it goes faster, you can tell it's not actually going faster. What they've done is they filmed it at normal speeds yeah. and then just sped it up. And then the opposite of that, when they're in space, um, to obviously sort of emulate some of the anti-gravity or the, the gravity um, sort of loss or whatever, they slow stuff right down. Um, and it's, it's, it's an interesting technique. And it's, it was obviously sort of what they had to hand, I suppose, in 1979, in terms of editing and filming techniques, but watching that in action was it's actually, I mean, it's, it's quite primitive now. Yeah, but it was interesting to mm-hmm. see. Like the centrifuge, you you mentioned that as well, Gordon, which that was too, a yes. great sequence. But that's one of the ones as well. You can see it as it starts to get to crazy speeds. That was obviously just 
speed it up. It's the same thing, just yeah, yeah, yeah played yeah, it at yeah. a very fast speed. You can yeah. sort of tell, like you can tell that it's not quite right. Yeah. The frame rate, you, you can yeah. tell there's a few missing. It's yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. definitely been sped up. Yeah. yeah, I think my favorite part of the film was probably the first. Let's say maybe like the first quarter, mainly when he um, sneaks around Jax's chateau and he's trying. First, there's a sense to Bond that there's something not quite ra- right with Drax, maybe the way he talks. And then clearly there's someone in Drax's organisation trying to take Bond's life. And But it's the fact he... Tri- I like the whole investigating of Drax he does and he realises there's, there's something not quite right with him. And yeah, I love the way that just... I think it's another one of these Bond films I prefer the, f- the first half and I think I think there's some great and again the, the pheasant shooting scene which is great the I was just the, about to mention the, the guy in the tree trying to yeah it was like Goldfinger playing golf with Goldfinger yeah. that sort of was a briefer moment just uh, yeah have a shot of this and it's like he's just looking for the bird and he slightly aims the gun to the right or whatever and then the guy falls out the tree yeah <laughs> uh, yeah so it was a good, good little moment yeah I, I did like that anything else that we have to, to talk about so again I'll, I'll touch on Bernard Lee uh, another um, very memorable performance as the original M and again he, although he's uh, he's a very strict boss he, he trusts Bond and he's got a respect for Bond and Bond's got a respect for him and despite the fact Bond kind of embarrasses him in the defence minister because he goes to reveal the lab to them out in Venice and uh, but it's turned into this great big drawing room and the minister of defence really unhappy but but then Bond shows M the the little gas canister which he found there so M immediately trusts Bond and M actually not for the first time he allows Bond to pretend he's an annual leave to continue his mission so he allows him to go in unofficially Without um, without proper authority. I wonder and if that's a cost cutting measure, giving him two weeks unpaid leave and getting him to yeah. still work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah, and, and I, how he decides so quickly as well. He just um, says, "I think you need to take an indefinite leave of absence. Have you any idea where you might go?" He says, "Oh, I've always had the hunkering to go to Rio." And yeah, the way um, I just love, and he says, "No slip ups, or we're both in trouble." The the fact that. It, um, trust Bond and it, it's just it's fitting as well I think just for for Bernard Lee's last film the line he says uh, Bond wouldn't call in you know us if it wasn't yeah that was kind of he's got earned his trust yeah. uh, that he knows he wouldn't ask for the support if he didn't yeah. need it sort of thing that, yeah. that was an interesting line Bond wouldn't push the panic button if... yeah that was it that was it the panic button <clears throat> yeah uh, on the scene with it was Money Penny, I felt like some of the dialogue was a little flat. I didn't feel there was much chemistry or connection at all. It felt like it was a scene that just had to be there. It was two scenes with Money Penny. I just didn't feel like it. There was they, much going on. Yeah, there's they, almost they felt very brisk, especially yeah. with the with the sort of interaction with Money Penny. But I didn't really feel anything. I almost felt like it didn't needed to be there. I think there is. It feels like there is a feeling within the makers that they have to insert that almost as a, a setup shot for yeah. Bond's meeting with. Either Q or M, whoever it turns out to be. And if in this one they completely jettisoned like the sort of, I mean, probably for the best because we always talk about how he's kind of a bit cruel that he's kind of leading her on and stuff. But none yeah. of that was in this. No, it, it was, was just very matter of fact. Yeah, yeah it was a, I think that was a very Roger Moore era thing. That there was when Connery was born, him, him and Money Penny. There yeah, was, they seem like there was something a, really between them, but it doesn't feel yeah. the same with Roger Moore. It was. It was the, the joke here was on two occasions that the Bond comes up with this over the top story about how he almost died in 
unbelievable circumstances and she won't believe him which is quite funny I think I, it didn't work for me I didn't really find it funny it almost felt like there was probably a joke in there and then they just couldn't be bothered telling it so they just left it <laughs> yeah <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't work for me at all it's different I, I was waiting I, yeah. for like okay that's some, I'm guessing there could have been something wittier there but they were just like ah, just move on just move on to the M scene there's good scenes with Q as well Q was, Q was I like him yeah. shaking his head and being exasperated the one I really loved that straight after the pre-titles sequence Sorry, straight after the actual title sequence, uh, M and the Minister of Defence and Q are waiting in M's office for Bond, and just the Minister and Q are, they just look so exasperated, just kind of slowly trudging ac- across the floors if they're waiting for him, and Bond just kind of rocks up smiling as usual, and M's like, 007 at last. <laughs> you know, it's quite subtle, but. It was there for a reason, you know. Mm-hmm. And but I mean, I was I suppose what I started saying there was the again great scenes between Roger Moore and Desmond Llewellyn as Q again, you know, throughout the film. Q gets a fair amount of screen time as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that last line of his was fantastic. The, the re-entry line, amazing. Yep. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, I think we are good to go then. If you want to move on to the rating, yeah, I'll go first on this one. I would rate this three stars um it's a bang in the middle three i don't think it's 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 anywhere near a two i think this has got a lot of great things for it i think the the tone is where it kind of falls a little the comedic tone with jaws specifically didn't work at all uh it didn't feel that like we spoke about with the scene with money penny little things that was didn't really work as humor but you know it is fantastic escapist fun um, the film knows it is not a serious film so you have to kind of like suspend disbelief where it gets ridiculous as well and it's a different type of film from the from your golden eyes and your uh, casino royales and stuff like that it is a completely different type of film this is madcap probably they hit the ceiling on the they sort of tailed it back a bit after this um, but still Drax great villain Elite, his uh, sort of he wasn't a showy, a kind of showy off villain. He sort of had a monotone style, but it was still quite effective. And again, set design, Ken Adams set designs. As much as there was maybe you're right, actually, Steve, maybe there was a little too much that you didn't get to enjoy it because once you're you're spoiled almost as spoiled for riches. The stuff on the, the space station was great, and yeah. It was just yeah a fun film, and again the the writing for uh, Good Holly Goodhead's character really enjoyed that. That we haven't spoke about where this film is really dated because there wasn't anything as apart from visual techniques and the odd humor that didn't work, but nothing in a tasteless way that the previous films had. Similar to The Spy Who Loved Me, which is one of the things I loved about that film. There I didn't I wasn't disgusted or, or, or embarrassed by real bad takes on minorities or anything like that. So yeah. Really enjoyed that, and again, it's a solid Roger Moore performance. He's fully winking at you in this film, and that's that's more or less what, what you what you come for to this one. So, three stars for me, Steve. I'm gonna go ever so slightly higher. I think I'm gonna have to go. I've been pondering this. I think I'm gonna have to go three and a half, purely because it's it's not. It's definitely nowhere near sort of one, two, Diamonds Are Forever levels. It was it was massively enjoyable. I gave Man With The Golden Gun a three, and that was because it was kind of straight down the middle, didn't really grip me. This was absolutely more enjoyable. It's not quite up there with some of the fours that I've watched, definitely, which is why I'm kind of having to go in the middle. But it was, it was over the top. The comedy brought it down, but as I've said, some of the scenery and the, the lighting and the way it was shot brought it right back up again. Yeah. 
I was impressed with the characters. Holly Goodhead is probably, like you said, since Tracy, at least the best Bond girl we've seen. Um, Drax is a villain. Again, the way he was played, that monotonous, very, very dry way. Um, that, oh, that line about um, when he was up on the space and where he kind of said, I see you've exhausted all of my attempts to provide you with a humorous <laughs> death. That was an absolute kick at Bond's, at, at what we've discussed about the villains trying to find stupid ways of killing Bond yeah. rather than just taking him straight out. And yeah. that, I, I thought, actually, that was that was actually, a yeah, brilliant meta, little touch. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so it's it's nearing on a four, but it's not quite there. And I think it was some of the, the slapstick moments that have just dated too badly that bring it down slightly. So on that yeah. regard, I think three and a half. Okay, excellent. Three and a half. I've just thought of slapstick moment. The moment, I can't remember what led to it, but it was the point where a guy is chucked into this poster and it just, like it's a yeah it's a whole, dental thing yeah. Oh, oh yeah the whole ambulance sequence ambulance it's like another example of let's kill Bond in an elaborate way instead of when Bond's making it out with Dr. Goodhead instead of when his back's turned the guy just kill him there and then he knocks him out and he puts the two of them in an ambulance I don't know where he's taking them but he gives Bond the chance to, it's just like it's just there for the sake of it to have all that sort of a an, am- an ambulance is, villains dis- disguised as an ambulance crew but it's kind of crazy and so I do like it but it's you know it's, it's daft you know it's almost like they thought of what they wanted the end scene out of that to come out and then try and construct a way for that to happen <laughs> they found the, the punchline and then yeah, the joke yeah backwards. Gordon so that was three and a half from Steve three from me Gordon what's your rating on this film I am going three and a half and yeah I'm, I've faced the fact we're going to have to really introduce half you guys have started doing it and yeah I can I can understand so um, it may, means I may need to reevaluate one or two others so I'm going to give this a 3.5 like Steve McCall and I think on that basis I've been reevaluating one or two others so I think Honor Majesty's Secret Service will become a four actually but I'll, we'll talk about that another time but because yeah, exactly. I couldn't possibly I don't feel I could give an over the top Bond film like this a, you know any higher than that film but um, yeah what I was going to say was yeah I think um this film is pure Roger Moore. He's a he's eyebrow raising, smirking, misogynist best in this film, and he's. Uh, that's yeah, the, I'm sure that's the back of the box quote. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's he's great, and um, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed Michael Onsdale's performance as Drax. He is a nasty guy. Chang, his bodyguard, is a nasty guy. I liked him as a villain. He seemed so offended when he offered, when Drax said, "Would you like a cucumber sandwich?" And he held out to Bond, and Bond said no, and he just, he, he just looked kind of miffed. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was really good. Um, yeah, there was some absolutely splendid sets, excellent camera work, crazy, amazing stunt work, uh, great supporting cast. Really enjoyed Holly Goodhead's performance. The film does, yeah, like like so many people would say, towards the end it descends into silliness. I don't think, I'm not sure if George should have been brought back at all, but I certainly don't think the whole thing of him becoming an ally of Bond is really justified. Uh, there's too much comedy. To, I love some of the comedy in this film, but I think some of it is pushing the boundaries a little bit too much, especially in like you know the Venice scene, for example. Um, I love the music in this film. That was another positive. Um, so there's not too many things, but you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about uh, a villain wanting to start his own race and basically eliminate everyone in Earth. 
it can't be taken lightly. It can't be taken with a pinch of salt. It's a Bond film that people have criticised for a long time, but um, which a lot of the criticism is not justified. It's a, but it's a film I keep returning to. You know, one one thing I want to add is so we found out that as you would suspect, the 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 shuttle belonging to Drax which was hijacked at the start. So it was discovered it was actually hijacked. So it was high. It was Drax's shuttle. It was loaned to the, the British government. It was then hijacked by Drax, who wanted it back. And Bond says to him later on, why did you want the shuttle back? He says, oh, one of my own Moonrakers, one of my existing Moonrakers developed a fault. So he needed it, he said, for this overall scheme. So yeah, I wondered to myself, see if that other shuttle hadn't developed a fault. Would no one have known what he was up to? And would the whole world... Have just come to an end one day and nobody was known about it. It just kind of got me thinking a little bit, you know. Interesting level of detail there. Uh, yeah, I like to go deep at times. Oh, okay, so all right. <laughs> There's a cue line if ever there was. Uh, hence, yeah, yeah, innuendo. My yeah. stomach cold. This film is. Uh, you mentioned Gordon. It's one of the ones that is criticised quite. It sits there with the man with the golden gun and probably diamonds and things like that as the, the sort of lower ranked sort of criti- uh, critical viewed Bond films box office wise this one was one of the most successful wasn't it it was sitting there as the most successful until Goldeneye beat it in 1995 so this one it's one of those things yeah. where the money obviously paid off it made something like 250 million or something and that like. suggested the decision to do a, a space based mm-hmm. Bond film yeah, yeah that, the appetite that, was there like yeah, it was the right decision off. so yeah 35 million was huge and you know The Spy Who Loved Me it was a, a real make or break Bond film and it was a real grand scale one and it was pretty much about half the budget of this so I mean that's really telling you something mm-hmm. yeah okay uh, we will uh, finish this one up then we more or less more or less agree on the film I would say it's good uh, with some excellent uh, sets and, and, and great character work on Hollywood Head just maybe the comedy lets it down but I think the return of Jaws as you said Gordon is one of the main issues of this film I think he should have been left out and it wouldn't have been so bad for that okay we will uh, finish this one and the next one of course we will return for this time really for your eyes only <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually have no recollection of that film it's one of the ones that I suspect I haven't seen so I'm interested to see how that one's going to go we will try and get the group back together all four of us and we will be back for that film bye bye thanks for listening yeah. bye. thanks for coming guys <laughs>